glad that you're here. My name's Dave, one of the pastors at Sedaris. We're going to enter our time of teaching, which we do every week. So if you've got a Bible, would you open it and turn to Exodus chapter 19. Exodus is the second book in the Bible, so it goes Genesis, Exodus. It's part of a five-part series um, known as the Pentateuch or the Torah, which are the first five books of the Jewish scriptures, what Christians have come to call the Old Testament. And then, of course, we have the New Testament, which begins with the telling of the life of Jesus and then the writings of his disciples who he commissioned as apostles, which means the sent ones. So the Old Testament is uh, the writings of the Old Testament prophets, and Moses is the author of Exodus. If you haven't been with us, if you're new, uh, there's a little uh, diagram over here that we shared at the introduction to this series. And Exodus is all about revealing who God is, like the rest of Scripture, and what he's doing in the world. And what we see in Exodus is God is moving his people, the Hebrew people or the Israelites, out of slavery in Egypt and into something else. So God never just moves you out of something He always moves you out of something to move you into something else. So we've been talking about that, and we're going to start to now see what he's moving them into. They've been moved out of slavery after 400 years in Egypt. God has miraculously intervened. Uh, You've probably heard the stories of this, the Red Sea, the ten plagues, all to frustrate and, and force Pharaoh who was the king of the greatest empire of the day, to release God's people so that they might move out into the wilderness, as we'll see, where they can begin to worship him and him alone. So uh, today, we're going to, to watch the beginnings of why he's moved them out. And we begin to see, now that they're in the wilderness, that God is going to move them into a covenant relationship with him. And part of this covenant relationship requires... Some laws, some words. This is how the relationship's going to work. And so today is the first week in five weeks that we're going to spend in the Ten Commandments. You heard of these? The Ten Commandments, uh, that's where we first see them is in the book of Exodus. And it is going to help us see how the covenant relationship between God and human beings is to function. Okay? So... um, it's a pretty cool part of the book of Exodus. I know I've said that like every week. <laughs> like there's something pretty cool. But we've all heard of these Ten Commandments, and um, many of us still live by them. And God is going to give the people these laws at the same place that, that he met Moses in the burning bush. So early on in Exodus, God meets Moses, who had fled from Egypt because he'd murdered a man, God meets him at Mount Sinai in a burning bush, and that's where he gives him this mission to go back to Egypt and rescue the people. And now they've come full circle, and they're back at Mount Sinai, and this is where God is going to give them the law. So Mount Sinai has a lot of importance in the story of God and in the story of Moses. And um, so we're back there again at the foot of Mount Sinai. So We'll spend these five weeks, we'll talk about the Ten Commandments, uh, which, which you will also see gives, uh, what we'll do is we'll take each of the commandments, so if you just want to look at this, just uh, look ahead to uh, Exodus 20, which is where we'll pick up next week. We're not going to get into any of the actual explanation of the commandments today, but just the next chapter, what you're going to see is uh, these Ten Commandments, and they're laid out pretty quickly, uh, even though they have big importance. And and let me just read them for you in case you're not familiar. 
The first commandment, this is Exodus 23, says, You shall have no other gods before me. Commandment one. Commandment two, you shall not make for yourself any carved images or anything in the likeness of anything in heaven above or that is on earth beneath or that is in the water underneath. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. So basically, don't make idols and worship idols. Commandment three, you shall not take the Lord's name in vain. Commandment four, remember the Sabbath to keep it holy. Commandment five, honor your father and your mother. Commandment six, you shall not murder. Seven, you shall not commit adultery. Eight, you shall not steal. Nine, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. And ten, you shall not covet. So here's basically how we're going to break that out. Next week, we'll talk about commandments one to three. Then week three, we'll talk about commandment four, which is the Sabbath. Then we're going to look the following week at commandments five through nine. And then we're going to have a whole week on coveting because y'all need to know about that. Y'all got a problem with that. (laughs) So you're in good company. So did the ancient Israelites. So uh, that's how we're going to play it. And then what we're actually going to see is right after the Ten Commandments, which come at us pretty quick, there's all these other laws. You say, well, what are these other laws? Are we going to go through these other laws as slowly as this? No, we're not, because actually what the other laws show us is how to apply the moral law of the Ten Commandments in everyday life. So we call this case law, okay? So there's the high laws of the land, and then Moses is going to give us some case law. So what we'll try to do in each of of the Ten Commandments is try to show you how the case law um, extrapolates or uh, manifests the law. So let me give you a quick example. So there's a really challenging, um, hard, hard to understand uh, law here that says, do not cook a young goat in its mother's milk. Have you come across some uh, Old Testament law like that? And you're like, what, what does that have to do with following God now? Should we not be cooking young goats in the mother's milk? Nobody has an answer. Okay, so the answer is, that doesn't apply to us. That is an expression of, believe it or not, do not worship any other gods but me. Because what you would see in the surrounding nation's worship practice was a ceremonial, sacrificial a ritual, which is to cook a young goat in its mother's milk. So that law is an expression of the commandment not to worship any other gods but me. See how that works? So we'll show you how... The Ten Commandments fit into the case law, and we'll try to say, okay, how can we do the same sorts of things in the civil, ceremonial life of the church today, okay? Because there's three types of laws that you'll see in the Old Testament. There's moral law, which is what the Ten Commandments are. There's civil law, which is, okay, how do we structure our society? And there's ceremonial law, which is how do we do our worship of God. And most people are in agreement that the moral law continues to be in effect for even Christians today. But many or most of the civil and ceremonial laws have been replaced by the new covenant in Jesus Christ. So we'll get into all this over the next five weeks. We'll try to explain how this works because sometimes you read the Old Testament and you wonder, how does this apply to me today? Am I still on the hook for all of this? So we'll try to get. But, but, but today, what I'm going to do is I'm going to help us ask an important question, which is, why 
does God give us law at all? Why does God give us law at all? Okay? I'm going to give you six reasons why. They're going to be tied to six facts about the law. And all these facts are going to be drawn from Exodus chapter 19. So there could be more to be said, but, but I think all of these we find in this particular story of the giving of the law and the preparation for the giving of the law the very first time. So six reasons. But before I say the six reasons why, I want to make one thing very, very clear, just in case you fall asleep before the end of this. I'm going to move as fast as I can. There is something so clear, and I want you to listen to it as we read Exodus 19. It's very clear that God never says, Moses never pens anything that would make us think that the law was given to us to save us. If you don't get anything out of this morning, I want you to know that. The law was never meant to save us. Only God can save. So important. So let's do this. Let's read chapter 19 of Exodus. We're going to read the whole thing. We've been doing that a lot because there's life in the words of Scripture. Okay? Here we go. So uh, if you're with us last week, Moses has just gotten some great worldly wisdom from his father-in-law Jethro. And here's the very next thing that happens. On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, so that's three months later, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. This is in the Sinai Peninsula. Um, Most of you know where that is. (laughs) Okay, so they set out from Rephidim, and they came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain of God. They encamped there, and this isn't like car camping, okay? They set up shop. They'll end up being there for an entire year, okay? So they're setting up and encamping at the foot of this mountain. Now, we're not sure exactly which mountain is Mount Sinai. There's a couple of options. One is uh, Jebel Musa, uh, which is about a uh, 7,000-foot peak, just to give you an idea of the mountain. But this isn't like a nice uh, Mount Rainier situation, okay? There's no evergreens. This is a desert mountain. So I want you to get that picture. And tens, if not hundreds of thousands of people are encamped surrounding the foot of this mountain, okay? Verse 3, while Moses went up to God, meaning he climbed back up that same mountain where he encountered the burning bush and heard from God the very first time. So the Lord... And in the actual Hebrew, that's Yahweh. We've been saying that. Anytime you see capital L-O-R-D, that's the personal name, Yahweh, which means I am that I am. God said, this is the name I want you to, to refer to me as. Yahweh called him out of the mountain, saying, thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, that means the people of Israel, and tell the people of Israel, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. 
So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord Yahweh had commanded him. All the people answered together and said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. This is beautiful. They don't even know what the commandments are, but they're promising whatever it is, we will obey. Now, what we'll see is that they break that promise over and over again. But this is a beautiful thing about following God, that you commit to doing whatever he tells you to do before you know exactly what those things are. You say, because of who you are, because I see your goodness, because I see your power, because I recognize that you created me and made me and I'm fearfully and wonderfully made, no matter what you ask, I'll do. This is the heart of true worship and true service to God. So they get that right at the beginning. And so many of us need to hear that because when you become a new Christian, maybe you're not yet a Christian, and we're so glad that you're here considering, do I want to follow this God? Now, the first thing you need to understand is what he did by sending his son Jesus to die on Calvary's cross for you. That's the most important thing. And when you realize that he's done that for you, then you'll choose to follow him. And guess what? You won't know everything he's asking you to do. And then you'll begin to study the scriptures and you'll start to see, oh my goodness, this is the law of God. This is what he's calling me to. It's a higher standard. This is hard, but yet you've already committed to follow him because you know what he's like. So Israel does that. It's a beautiful thing. They say, all the people answered together, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And so Moses reported these words of the people to Yahweh. And then Yahweh said to Moses, Behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud, that the people may hear when I speak with you, Moses, and may also believe you forever. So God said, I'm going to show up so that they know that I'm actually here, that you're just not thinking these things in your head. So I'm going to show up in such a powerful way that it's obvious that you're talking to me. So when Moses told the words to the people, uh, the words of the people to Yahweh, Yahweh said to Moses, go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day, I, Yahweh, will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of the people and you shall set limits for the people, barriers for the people all around, saying, take care not to go up to the mountain or touch the edge of the mountain, for whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. This is strange. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot with an arrow, is the proper translation, shot with an arrow, whether beast or man, so even if one of your cattle runs across this barrier that we've set up, we've got to to stone them or shoot them with an arrow, so that when the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain, but not past the barrier." So Moses went down from the mountain to the people to consecrate the people and to wash their garments. And he said to the people, be ready for the third day. And by the way, he says, if you're following along, you're like, what? Do not go near a woman. (laughs) Translation, have no sexual relations with your spouse for the next three days. We'll get into that in a sec. As they wait on The edge of their seat. Okay, so verse 16. On the morning of the third day, there will be thunders and lightnings 
and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp tremble. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it with fire, and the smoke of it went up like smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, perhaps that's the lightning, sounds like thunder, uh, like a thunder trumpet. It grew louder and louder. Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. And Moses went up the mountain. And Yahweh said to Moses, Now go back down and warn the people again, lest they break through to Yahweh to look. And many of them will perish. So people are going to be so, they want to get closer, they want to be attracted. That's natural when you see the power and the awesomeness of God. So God says, go back down and warn them again. Really, seriously, don't break through that barrier. Also, let the priests come near to the Lord to consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. And Moses said to Yahweh, the people cannot come up to Mount Sinai, for you yourself have already warned us, saying, set the limits around the mountain and consecrate it. And the Lord said to him, no, no, go down and then come back up again bringing Aaron with you, but do not let the priests and the people break through to come to the Lord, lest he break out against them. So Moses went down and told the people. Okay, this is right before we get the Ten Commandments. And, and as the story goes, Moses will go back up, and God will give him the Ten Commandments, and he'll etch them on stone, and he'll bring the stone tablets down. And what we'll see is actually the people aren't patient. He'll have to go back up and... and talk to the Lord again. So this is where we're at, and I'm just going to jump right into the six things that this helps us see about what the law is and then why God gives us the law. So six things. You ready? This is so important because I think we have a false understanding of what the law is. Remember, it cannot save. It's never meant to. So what was it meant to do? The first fact of the law is this. God's true law is responsive. So if you're taking notes, right, responsive. We, as human beings, need a way to respond to God's delivering love. Right? Because true relationship, true love, takes two. Takes two to tango, as the saying goes. So look at this again, verse nine, or chapter 19, verses 4 to 6. Read it with me again. What does it say? You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Who acted first in this relationship? God. <laughs> he acted first. He always acts first. He always saves us before we are worth saving. A reminder that the law or following the law will never save you. You can never make yourself so beautiful to God that, oh, now he's going to decide. He's already done it. So he said, you've already seen what I've done, how I've already saved you. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession. Underline treasured. Because look what he says next. Among all the people. Why does he say among all the people? Because he says this. For all the earth, including all the people, 
are mine. So everything is already God's possession. And what he's saying to Israel is, if you follow my law and respond in obedience, you will be my treasured possession. You'll be unique and set apart. And so God gives Israel, and he gives to us, these Ten Commandments as a way for us to show our loyalty to the God who has already saved us. It's our way of entering into the relationship. You can say it like this. It seals the covenant. Covenant is something even greater than a contract. But it's kind of like a contract in some way. There's two parties, and they both agree to join into a covenant relationship. Maybe the best thing we have to understand covenant is marriage. Unfortunately, it has been so degraded that we treat it like an economic contract, but it was never meant to be like that. It was, it was said the two become one flesh, meaning you can't pull apart once something is welded together by the Spirit. And so our obedience to the law, because we have the law and we know what God has said and we can do what he said, this is how we sign the eternal, unbreakable marriage certificate with God. This is the way we do it. So the law gives us a way to respond. You see, because God signs the covenant through his act of deliverance. Whether that's with Israel, through delivering them from Egypt, or for all humanity, when Christ delivers us from sin, death, and the enemies of God. So God signs it through his acts of deliverance. How do we sign it? Humans sign it through our obedience to the law. That's how we sign it. Because our obedience to the law is an act of faith in the one God who has saved us. You see, that's how we express our faith. Faith is not just an apprehension of the mind or an apprehension of the heart, but it's a move of the whole being to express our faith. So when we obey, it is our response to God's love. It's a response of our faith in action. So, God has moved Israelites out of obedience to Egyptian law. So, to use our diagram, he's moved them out of obedience to Pharaoh and the Egyptian law, and he's moved us into obedience to Yahweh's law. So, you've got to understand that. He's moved us out of one thing, not just to do whatever we want, but to move us into another set of laws. So, we'll see this in reason number four. Just like Egypt's laws are an expression of Pharaoh's character and Pharaoh's desires, so the laws of Yahweh are an expression of God's heart, God's desires, God's character. And so that's why we'll see in, um, for instance, Numbers chapter 6, which is just a couple books after Exodus, uh, we'll we'll see this great priestly blessing from Aaron, and then what, what he'll say is this, in number 627, so shall they, that's the people of Israel, put my name on the people of Israel, and I will bless them. So God's literally saying, I'm signing my name on my people, like a tattoo on the heart. He's saying, I'm signing my name. So as we respond to God's delivering love through faithfulness to the law, We are putting God's name upon us for the world to see and for God to know 
that our love is sincere. So this is number one. The law allows us to become a treasured possession because it allows us to respond to God. God doesn't need us to save him. This is not a reciprocal relationship. In that we, we love God exactly the same he loves us. Only God can save, but we can follow his voice. Okay, so that's number one. Number two, the fact is this. Fact number two, God's true law is external, which means it comes from the outside in. His law is outside of us. And why do we need that? Because we need external guidance. Because our internal compass is broken. Our internal compass is broken. I think it's fair to say that some of the compasses of human beings in this world are more broken than others. We can say that. But the reality is every single one of us has a corrupted compass. The fall, explained in Genesis, has affected us all. So we're even born into this world with a broken, corrupt compass. Our true north is messed up. So we are born with broken bearings. Which means we need something outside of ourselves to guide us. So from the text, what do we see? What does Moses do? He has to go up to the mountain to receive from God divine external instruction, and then God sends him back down the mountain to tell other people. This is how Christianity works. It's called the prophetic religion, meaning we must ascend to hear from God, and we do that through the scriptures now, through prayer, but then we return and share what God has given to us. And if that gets malfunctions or or breaks in any way, we will find ourselves following our broken bearings off course. So we see that in the text. Moses must go up. He must get something that he does not have external to him and bring it back to the people. This is so important for us in 2021 (laughs) to uh, understand because we live in a world that is guided by what's, what you might call secular humanism. Secular being, um, we try to remove God from the situation. Humanism meaning that um, all things and all knowledge are centered on the human being. Meaning all truth, including moral and ethical knowledge, it stems from human beings and then works its way outward. Biblical theism, on the other hand, is the opposite. It says that God is the pinnacle and center of all knowledge including moral and ethical knowledge. So we must look to him outside of ourselves to understand what's truly right and good and beautiful. And so secular uh, humanism, it, 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 you don't even, nobody's like trying to convince you of secular humanism. It's just what you are if you're born in America or in the West in, 20, you know, in the last 50 years. So, so it's like you won't even recognize that this is how you live. But, I mean, it infuses politics, academia, science, and sadly, many, if not most, Christian institutions and churches. We just sort of fall into it, sort of the default of our age, meaning we think that uh, we have the knowledge internally, and our job is just to realize it and express it and make everybody else get on board with, with how we feel right and wrong should go. 
Now, what this leads to is sort of a majority rules kind of uh, ethic or morality in our land, meaning like you just got to pile up the number of people that believe in a thing. This is why you'll hear on the news. It'll say things like, you know, the, the quote is always, well, you know, most Americans believe that, da, 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 da. What they're saying, they're saying, listen, the majority of the way people feel internally is this, so let's align our external laws along the way people already think. Now, the problem with that is that people aren't really making up their own minds anyhow. They're being shaped by all sorts of influences, people with platforms and agendas and all those things. We talked about that last week. But the reality is then majority rule morality becomes the law of the land, which is why we just need to be, if you consider yourself a Christian, we just need to think, I need to think differently, and I need to start with something outside of myself because I know that God always gave the people the law because they shouldn't trust perfectly their internal compass. So there's a number of passages that show us this. Judges 17.6. This is a time after Israel has already taken over the land. They don't yet have a king, and there's different sort of ruling factions and tribes that have different judges. And Judges 17.6 says this, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did whatever seemed right in their own eyes. What's that sound like? Secular humanism. Whatever seemed right in their own eyes. Which is what? True north becomes a moving target then. Because something seems right today, doesn't seem right tomorrow, this decade, that decade, it's swayed. Proverbs 14, 12 warns us this. says, there is a way that seems right to man, but its end is the way of death. Proverbs 21.2 warns us this, says, every way of man is right in his own eyes, but Yahweh weighs the heart. So there's no escaping from the law of God just by doing what seems right in your own eyes. God says, I've given you an external law, it's come from outside of you, your job is to try to figure out what that is and then live your life accordingly. But that's why even the people of Israel needed it. They were prone to just do what seemed right in their own, what felt right. In their own eyes. So it's fact number two. We need an external guidance. Fact number three. God's true law is fixed, which is to say it's unchangeable. It's not relative to the time, the culture, meaning it's also timeless. So we need a law like this so that it leaves no room for excuses. Why? Why do we need a law that doesn't leave room for excuses? Because we love letting ourselves off the hook. Now, now hear me. What did I say? We love letting ourselves off the hook. You know who we don't like letting off the hook? Everybody else. We're really good at judging everybody else. But for me, I've got a reason why. Listen, if you only knew, if you knew my childhood, if, if you knew who my parents were, if you knew what my personality is like, if you knew what my Enneagram number was, if you knew my past trauma, if you know how people had sinned against me, if you knew the kind of year that I've had, if you, if you knew what my job was like. You know, you know, in today's world, this is pretty normal. I mean, we've got an excuse for everything. And so God gives us a fixed law so that we don't have to do the gymnastics of relativizing it to the culture, to the time, 
We just say it's fixed, and i got to figure out how do I live that out with the new technology or the new situation that we're in. But it's fixed, and it removes excuses. There is a true north fixed at all times and all seasons for all persons. We get that in the Ten Commandments. Uh, the Scripture calls this like a plumb line. Do you know what a plumb line is? Probably not. Maybe, maybe if you're in construction. But they would use it in uh, ancient times to try to make sure they were building a, a, a building straight so you don't get the leaning tower of Pisa. They clearly didn't use a plumb line. But you would hold it up, and it was attached to like a heavy weight, and you'd hold it up, and you'd use the laws of gravity to create a straight line, and then you'd build your building. So it's just like a, you know, dangling. You'd make sure it stops dangling before you start building. That's called a plumb line. So it's always true. It gives you a true. And the scripture talks about that we have a plumb line in the law for one, but more importantly, in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus, who is God in the flesh, lived the perfect human life. He is the human plumb line for this is how you live. He personified once and for all, living out the Ten Commandments. And so when we look to him, we see perfect humanity, perfect living, perfect loving, perfect speaking, perfect being, and we can set ourselves on Jesus Christ. And there's only one of them. There's not many Christ-like figures. There's one Christ, and we set our life on him. He is the plumb line. So where do we see this in the text? Well, guess what, what Moses did. Or God, God did it for Moses, or we're not exactly sure. I, I like to think Moses probably just etched it in there. It wasn't some miraculous God's finger in the stone. He etched it in the stone because God said, make sure they know this is fixed. And they carried those tablets with them in the ark throughout all their wanderings for 40 years, and then it sat in the temple in Israel, the Ark of the Covenant, and the stone tablets, because what? These aren't changing. These are fixed. We need a law that's fixed so that we don't have room for our excuses. Listen, even if you're not a Christian in the room, you'll understand this. Because it's not just Christians who, who understand that they've broken an eternal fixed law. I... Uh, <laughs> I don't know if, if, if you have a better life than I do. If you do, meaning more friends, more fun things to do, you probably don't watch a lot of Dateline, but I watch a lot of Dateline. And Dateline's like, it's like one of those news programs, uh, like 60 Minutes, except at some point in the past, they decided, we're going to specialize on murder, <laughs> and, and we're primarily going to specialize on spousal murder. And so if you were an alien life form and you came to this earth and the only program you ever watched was Dateline, you would assume that every marriage ends in murder. <laughs> Because it's like every episode is, things were looking good until. <laughs> and so uh, here's the deal. I've watched enough Dateline to know. Even those people who do not consider themselves to be followers of the Ten Commandments, they still try to cover up their murder. Why do they do that? Well, they don't want to cop it a lot, but they know that they've broken an eternal fixed moral code. They know they've done something wrong. Nobody's murdering their spouse thinking, this is probably okay. Now they have a million excuses of why, well, you don't know my wife, you don't know my husband, you don't know how much he snores. So <laughs> watch a little Dateline and realize the whole world knows that they're accountable to something or someone for at least thou shall not murder. But they've all got an excuse. They've all got something to say to let themselves off the hook. Now here's the great news. 
when you receive the fixed eternal law of God, this is going to help you. It's going to help you stop looking for excuses. And when you stop looking for excuses, you know what you can start doing? Looking for something that will actually save you. That's why we need to receive the true law of God. We can start looking for something other than an excuse. God wants to give that to us. And we'll see what that thing is in a sec. Fact number four. Fact number four. God's true law is holy. Write down holy. Just as God is holy. We'll talk about what holy is in a second here. We need a law like this, a holy law, to call us to something higher because we tend to choose the path of least resistance. That's what we tend to do. Let me find the easiest way through life. But God calls us to something higher. And we enter that path to something higher, we realize, oh, this is actually what I was created for. But we need a law to help us get there, to get us moving on the right path towards something holy, something better. So let's read this again. Um, 19, 10 to 15. 19, chapter 19, verses 10 to 15. says this. So when Moses spoke these words to the people uh, from Yahweh, he said, Yahweh said to Moses, go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments and be ready on the third day. For on the third day, Yahweh will come down from Mount Sinai in their sight of all the people and you shall set limits for the people all around saying, take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. For whoever touches the mountain shall surely be put to death. No hand shall touch it, but he shall be stoned or shot with an arrow, whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they will come down to the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain and told this to the people and consecrated them. And they washed their garments. And they said, be ready for the third day and do not Go near a woman, which is to say, just for a few days. We try to explain why, why, why does he throw in this, do not go near a woman. Listen, you could just as easily say, do not go near a man. The point here is God is saying, I want you to prepare yourself for something even greater than the good thing of sex within the marriage covenant. There's something even greater, which is that I'm going to show up. So I don't want you to be distracted by the good things of life on these particular three days, I want you to be preparing yourself so you can be fully present and fully aware of what I'm doing. So you get yourself ready. Consecrate yourself. Wash your garments, which have been no small thing. Because there's, not everybody has like running water in their tent, okay? So they've got to stand, wait at this one water source. Wait their turn to wash their clothes, to prepare for the coming of the Lord to Mount Sinai. Consecrate yourself. Get yourself ready. Forego even, even good things so that you can focus on greater things just for these few days. And all of this to remind people of God's holiness and therefore the holiness of the words and commands he's about to give them. That's why all, all of this drama is going on. God says, you need help to understand how truly holy I am, including me setting a boundary so that you realize that we are other. So here's two definitions of holy. Um, one part of holiness, because we use this word holy all the time. What, is it, what does it actually mean? 
is that God is transcendent, He is other, He is unlike us, He is set apart, He is separate. So this is sort of the ont- what we call ontological holiness of God. Ont- ontological means the being itself. So God is totally other from us. He has a lot of things similar because he made us in his image, but he is other. He is holy. He is set apart. So in his being, he is transcendent other. You see that by the setting of the line. Look it. God is other. And the other part of holy means that God is morally pure. He is untainted. In every way, in everything he does, he acts rightly. He cannot act unrightly. We use the term righteousness, meaning he always acts righteously. So this is, this is who God is. This is how God acts. He is holy. And so when we read the Ten Commandments, we understand that these uh, commandments are not uh, just arbitrary things that God decided to be funny to see if we could follow them. These are rooted in his holy character. So the expressions of the law are expressions of his character. So in like 1 Peter chapter 3, uh, last year, it was about this time actually, we were going through 1 Peter. So you can go back and see a whole sermon on this particular verse. God says, be holy as I am holy. Be holy as God is holy. Now, what's he saying there? Listen, it's important to understand this. You will never be holy like God is holy. What do we say? He's ontologically different than you. And you always will fall short. But he's saying, try to be holy as God is holy. Try. And, and I know this from my, my son Owen is in a phase where he just does everything that his older brother Grayson does. He just imitates every little thing. And you see on Grayson's face, my older one, he gets so much joy out of this. He feels proud. He feel it builds him up to see his little brother trying to imitate everything he does. Now, Grayson's not holy. <laughs> like God is holy. We're working on that. But imitation is the greatest form of flattery. In the same way, when we try and seek the, the holy perfection in the way we live, just as God li- is, we reflect upon his greatness and holiness. And, and this is what the Bible calls we bring him glory. So we want to be holy as God is holy because it's, it's an expression of his character and he's created us in his image to be like him, even though he will always be other ontologically from us, okay? So, his law, this external, fixed response that we can make to God in love, draws us out then of our mediocrity and our moral apathy and our tendency to choose the path. It draws us out towards otherness, godness. You could say it like this. God is not average. Morally or ontologically, and with his law, we by nature, sorry, without his law, we by nature try to become morally attuned to the averages, like we said, of the world around us. Rather than, with his law, we can become morally attuned to the transcendence of God above us. So which do you want? God can actually pull us up because he is the only transcendent being. 
So where we tend to look to other things to pull us up out of the fray, right? Think of all the things we try to look to to pull us up out of our station, out of our pain, out of our suffering, out of our feeling of inadequacy. We looked at so many other things to try to pull us up out of our fray, but what do they do? They always let us down. Not God, not his law. When we seek to obey him, it literally pulls us up out of the ashes, and we can become what we know deep down. There's something more. His law helps us get there. So that's fact number four. We're cruising. Fact number five. Dramatic pause, water break. Believe it or not, I was going to try to do all this and the first three commandments. I said, listen, we got all summer here, so let's just slow it down. Fact number five. God's true law is transformative. So we need a law to turn us into something we are not yet, similar to what I just said. But his law is transformative. And why? Why do we need that? Because we tend to pick and choose which laws to follow that are self-reinforcing or advantageous. So for instance, you know, when we're driving in our car and we get road rage, I can't believe that person, you know, ran that light or pulled through or going so fast. Well, if we're the ones late for a meeting, <laughs> we tend to disregard the traffic laws. And I don't apologize to all you bikers everywhere, but you have become my favorite analogy of all time. Bikers are the worst. Bikers choose when they want to act like a motor vehicle and when they'd like to act like a pedestrian, <laughs> depending on what's going on. So stop signs, clearly a pedestrian. Red lights, clearly a pedestrian. At all other times, motor vehicle. I love bicyclists. <laughs> but it's just a great illustration. We like to choose the laws that reinforce or ad, are advantageous to us. And so what they tend to do is not transform us. They just keep us where, wherever we're at. So look, look back again to uh, chapter 19, verses 5 and 6. Say this. So now, therefore, you will indeed obey my voice, keep my covenant. You shall be my treasured possession among all people, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So Ryan talked about this a couple weeks ago. You can go back and listen to his whole sermon because he'll tease this out even further. Uh, I think the title of that was Ascension Sunday, but he's talking about this particular verse. And, and what's going on here, look at, look at what God says. He says, you will be, future tense, you will be if you follow my law, you will become, so something will happen to you for me. The thing that's going to happen to you is actually for my benefit. You will become a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Now, are they already? No. God has taken them out. He's moved them out into the wilderness so that they might begin to be transformed into the holy nation that they will become. And this holy nation is a kingdom of priests which is to say God's law is meant to transform you, me, and us into this kingdom of priests. Now, what do priests do? Priests do four things. Priests would be the, the people that stand before, between God and humanity and bring God and humanity closer. 
So they dispense God's truth, his justice, his favor, his discipline, and his holiness to humans. That's what priests are meant to do. Israel was meant to be an example to people from other nations. They will see their holy beliefs and holy actions, and they will be impressed enough to want to know personally the same God who guided the people in this way. That's the first function. They're an example. The second, Israel's meant to proclaim the truth. So when you live out the words of God, you say, God told me this, and so I'm living it out. You're proclaiming the truth of God and inviting people from other nations to come and accept this God and his truth as their own. Just like Jethro did last week, right? Moses proclaimed the truth of God, and Jethro joined this kingdom of priests. The third thing the priests do. So Israel was meant to intercede for the rest of the world by offering uh, acceptable offerings to God, both sacrifices and right behavior. And thus, they, um, they decrease the general distance between God and humankind. And then the fourth thing that priests do, so a nation of priests would do, is that Israel would keep the promises of God, preserve his word, okay, which had already been spoken, and, he would, and they would record it. So Israel's being called to this special treasured possession to be, not just for themselves, but to be a blessing to the rest of the world. That's what the law is trying to transform you into. It's true of Israel, and it's true of us today. So we, if we, now, if you don't want to be transformed into a priest or a king, uh, be a part of this holy nation, the church, well, then don't follow his law. And I can assure you, you will just follow the laws that you want to follow to stay as you are. But if you want to be this treasured possession, this kingdom of priests, if you want to be a part of that, you follow the law of God. That's why he gave it to you. Fact number six. God's true law. Let me pause on this one. This is, this is probably the most important. God's true law exposes, exposes, which is to say it brings things to light. It clarifies things that were otherwise not seen because we need help seeing our true need. We tend to misdiagnose the problem. We tend to think it's one thing when it's actually another thing. And so the law actually is given to us to expose our sin rather than to save us from it. Wait, what? Yes, without the law, we might think that we are close to God or that we're almost there. But then we see the law and we realize how far we have to go. So, so the law, by the grace of God, the law relieves us of this silly notion that we can save ourselves or that somehow we can just be perfect enough that God will bring us into his kingdom. The law, without it, we might really believe that. The law helps us to see, oh man, we have so far to go, which is why we're spending a whole week on the 10th commandment, coveting. How you doing with that one? As I haven't murdered anybody in a while, haven't been on Dateline, I said like, tell me about your covet life. <laughs> Romans 3.20, the Apostle Paul says this, for by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight meaning we'll be made right in the sight of God, we'll be saved, we'll be able to be declared innocent in the sight of God. Since through the law comes knowledge of sin. See, you've gotten it totally wrong. The law is not meant to help you become good enough for God. It's meant to show you that you never will be good enough for God. It's like the ultimate fluorescent light. 
It's like you've seen those shows where they go in with a fluorescent light in a hotel room and you're like, I'm never sleeping in a hotel room again (laughs) because this is disgusting. The law is like this fluorescent light that shows us truly the brokenness of our compass, the wickedness of our heart, our inability to live righteously even though we say we do. So here we are. The law brings us face to face our sin with God's holiness and we realize that we cannot cohabitate. That God is so other, so holy, and we are truly so sinful and falling short of his holy perfection as given to us in the law that we realize, okay, this now makes sense why heaven and earth are, can't be fully united again. Which then, coming back to Exodus chapter 19, God's trying to show them that by this boundary by like the CSI scene that's set up before anybody dies, just saying, hey, there will be a body bag on the other side of that because God is different than us. He is holy, and we are not, and we cannot cohabitate. It literally can't happen. And, and this uh, illustration came to mind last night as I was uh, rocking my two-year-old Owen to sleep, and he's just laying on my chest, and it's like the sweetest, most beautiful thing. I laid there for like 30 minutes longer than I needed to, because it was just so sweet. And this thought popped into my head. Sure is nice now. This is my desire at all times. But if you know my son, you know that, <laughs> you'll be like, you just said this? Yeah. His, uh, how do I say this nicely? When he takes care of his business, it smells so bad that I literally cannot be in the same room as him. He doesn't understand why, but it's so bad. (laughs) His grandmother's here. It is honestly much worse than my first son's, and it's just so bad that it doesn't matter how much my desire would be to hold him like that at all times. I literally cannot be in the same room with him unless I take care and get out of him that hell. Got to get it out of the house. We have a separate garbage can outside the house for number two. Wait, number two garbage can. It's literally that bad. So this is what the law reveals to us, that it's not just like God doesn't really want to be with us that much or else he'd put up with our stuff. It's like it's so bad that something has to act. Some judgment on the diaper has to happen in order to restore the relationship. That's what God's holiness and our sin, that's the situation it creates. And so the answer is, what can Owen do? He can't just like stop sinning. It's his nature. So what can he do? The answer is nothing. He can do nothing. And that's exactly the point that God's trying to show us here. That the law leaves us utterly beside ourselves. And we realize how ridiculous it is to think that we could save ourselves by just trying a little bit harder. And so therefore we're prepared to hear what at this point can be the only news that we would ever categorize as good. Which is that God did something that we could not do on our behalf. So what did he do? Let's revisit this scene. 
It's barred off. No one can come near to God with the way things are. God's holiness and our sin, they're at odds. And what, we're, what, we'll see, what we see here is this fireworks show as God comes down and thunder and lightning and smoke that blots out the sun. And there's an earthquake. And it's clear that the power and the presence of God is there, which is why if you get too close, you'll surely die. Well, there's a very similar fireworks show that comes 1,300 years later. When we hear about this Jesus of Nazareth, who is, by all accounts, a moral man, and he claims to be the Son of God, come in the flesh, and he's, ex- and he's convicted of a, of, of a bogus charge, and he carries his cross up a mountain to the hill called Calvary, and he hangs there. Guess what happens? It says, darkness covered the land. Something blotted out the sun, and an earthquake, as he breathes his last, shakes the very foundation, and the people tremble, and the veil in the temple tears in two. So what happened? Well, the Bible tells us what happened. Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, holiness in the flesh, lived a perfect life, and he, now imagine this, walked among the people of Israel, and just as he walks among us, and he says, touch me, place your sins upon me, I'm pure and I'm holy and I will take them on. The scripture says, he became sin who knew no sin. Picture the people of Israel putting their hands and laying their sins, laying their guilt and their dirtiness upon Jesus, and Jesus says, I'll cross that boundary, and I'll stand before the holy God and take upon myself all of the judgment, all of the justice due for all of our sin. That's what happened on Calvary. Jesus crossed the Rubicon. He stepped out knowing once he took upon us his sin what would happen to him. That the fullness of the power and the might of God would come upon him and it would be his body bag laying before the people and he would take upon the sin of the world. That's what happened at Mount Calvary. And God was preparing his people to see that through Mount Sinai and through the law so that when we understand that the law and our own attempts at righteousness will always fail, we'll see what Jesus did to take upon himself our sin for his righteousness. That's the gospel. That's the good news. And the law will help us get there. Because we'll see we're so far from his holiness.